Dear God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you have, that we have the opportunity to search your scriptures and to know more of you, our Savior, our King, our, our Lord, our everything, our fountain of grace, our standard and dispenser of truth. Lord God, we come asking you to meet us right now. If you would change us and continue to conform us into your likeness and under um, help us to submit to your word in every way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series in the, the Remember Our Calling, and we have gone through the the first three M's are our core values. One was the message of the gospel. The other was mercy to the block. Last week, we meditated on um, um, maturing men, women, and families. And this week, we've come to multiplication. And we're going to hear God speak to us about multiplication through the book of Titus. So if you would, Turn to page 1,000 in those Bibles that's been handed to you. So on page 1,000, and we'll be in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Titus and the young church are recipients of this letter. The, the writer is the Apostle Paul. Paul and Titus were close friends. Paul probably led Titus to Christ, and they were also co-workers in the ministry. Paul wrote this letter to give him guidance and encouragement on how to continue his gospel work on this island um, called, on this Mediterranean island called Crete. And in these particular verses, he talks about appointing elders and sending out elders. So follow along as I read. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or emphasis on the man of one wife or one woman man. So if he is married, then he should be faithful to his wife. He should care for her, lay down his life for her and her alone, and, and to give intimacy that is reserved singularly for marriage. If his wife dies and he happens to remarry, he is still eligible because the focus is on loyalty and faithfulness to the woman that he is espoused to. And not only must he be loyal to his wife and a one-woman man, 
But he also, if he is to have children, the children must be in submission to him. It says they believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. These terms debauchery and insubordination refer to wild, loose, uncontrollable, reckless living that demonstrates no concern for the law of the land and no concern for the law that's laid down in his home or his parents' authority. They must fall in line and be orderly at home and in public. Now, what kind of throws people off in this one is that the, it says the term believing. It says believing. Now, that's kind of slightly ambiguous because some may take it as a child must be a genuine believer or a, a convert. And some would render the word as faithful, which would then just be the positive form of him, of the, of the child not being reckless and not being, insub, and being, not being insubordinate. And I think the word faithful kind of is very consistent with the qualifications that's outlined in 1 Timothy 3, where it says the child must be in all submission to his I mean, he must have his children in all submission. But whatever the case, whether it's a child must be a believer or, he, or whether he is, is just faithful, the main point is that he, the child must not give any, cause any shame on his household or on the household of God, that is. And so he must not be openly, out for, outwardly unrepentant in sin. That's the goal that Titus, Paul is getting at with Titus. The man must have, be loyal to his wife, obviously, and, he, and his children must be in subjection to him and must be under his rule. And now, if a person does not, is not married, can he be an elder or a pastor? Yes. It does not say he must be married. But it's more like if he is married. So therefore, if a man is single, he too must be a one-woman man. But what that looks like for him is that he must treat all his sisters, he must treat the sisters of the church with dignity and respect. He must watch the way he talks about them. He must watch his advances. He must not be flirtatious in any way. And does this mean that he must have uh, children? No, it also is in the same way, the phrase, if, when we think of, does an elder have to have children? The answer is no. It's mainly as referencing to if he has children, his children must be in subjection to him. So an elder must be blameless at home. And why? Simply because if a man can't take care of his household, how will he take care of the household of God? That's what he says in 1 Timothy 3. If he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's very likely that if he is unloving at home or in his private life, then he will be unloving to the people in his church. And if he can't influence and direct his own house towards righteousness, then he won't be able to direct and influence the people in his church towards righteousness. Sadly, there's been some confusion about this. Because sometimes 
a person who is reckless at home still has a church that grows. Quotes. Grows. How does that happen? God's grace. God uses broken vessels to do wonderful things. The problem is that sometimes that particular pastor may think that because his church is growing by God's grace that he is in the will of God, and that is not the case. And so it's our responsibility then, if we observe someone who is out of line at home, to, one, grab other people, grab other elders maybe, and ask them to address it and point it out to him. And if nothing happens, then we may have to consider other things. But we must not sit under leadership in which their home is in a wreck. We must not do that. And it's kind of sad that we've seen many times in the media and in our neighborhoods sometimes in which pastors have had infidelity in their household. And the church splits and some stay with the pastor. That's not good, family. That's putting this person over the word of God. We must not do that. And we must pray for pastors who are in those situations. So a pastor must be blameless at home, but he also must be blameless in character. Look at verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Not arrogant means he can't think of his life supremely for himself. Not quick-tempered, he can't be known as a hothead or always blowing the fuse. Not drunkard or violent, he must not be controlled by his passions. Not greedy for gain, he can't think money over everything and be prone to to shameful gain. But that's what he must not be. What should he be? Verse 8 but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable, this phrase hospitable, literally means lover of strangers. His home must be open to the extent that even strangers are welcome. He must be a lover of good, meaning that he, he doesn't rejoice in things that are evil. He must be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This man must take his life and beat it into submission by God's word for his glory. He must pursue holiness and be unashamed of doing so. Kids may call this type of person a goody good. The world may look at him and say he's boring. Church look at him and say he's holy. This is the type of person that God wants as a pastor. And as I was thinking about this list, especially what a person is not to be, I see that he's, 
either an immature Christian at best and may even be a non-believer. For the Lord despises the proud. And in Colossians 3, it says that the wrath, when it talks about what the, where the wrath of God will come on certain things, in that list, the wrath of God will come on anger and malice. And as for greedy and drunkard, it says in 1 Corinthians 6.10, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. All of these characteristics describe someone who has really no real assurance of their salvation and may, I put may, may be headed to hell. Now, why would Paul put this in a list? Seems obvious, right? These people are immature Christians, may not be believers, living like the world that they were just called out of. Why would he have to put this in a list? Well, brothers, we are prone to make bad judgments. We are prone to want people that look just like us, no matter the cost. It kind of makes us feel good, right? I need a pastor who was a who kind of struggling with being a thief, because I struggle with being a thief. <laughs> I need a pastor that struggle with adultery, because I, I need him to relate to me, because I'm an adulterer. Mm. Don't let yourself off the hook that easy. Don't let yourself off the hook that easy. No, we want a pastor that has a standard of righteousness that we can imitate. We want the pastor to be able to say, imitate us. And when you imitate us as we imitate Christ, then you're in good foot and you're in a good step. And so you want to put somebody up that you can imitate because this is just normal Christianity. But sometimes in our sinfulness, we want to lower the bar for what we should be. And so we may appoint one of these Elder, unqualified elders. Sometimes we may appoint one of these unqualified elders because we put friendship and family ties over God's word. Many churches who the next pastor is the son. And everybody knows the son should not be the next pastor. But yet, the next pastor is the son in line. You can't put family ties over this. His souls are too precious for that. And sometimes, we may in our sinfulness appoint unqualified pastors because we just have not come to understand grace. And the power of God's transforming grace in our lives. And so we think every man or every woman has their vice. So he's going to be a sinner. I'm a sinner. So he good, I'm good. And we haven't really understood what grace is like. And what grace does. 
In Titus 2, 11 through 14, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So yes, when a person is convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin, and they see that they have been walking in the way contrary to the Lord, and when they look in the Scriptures, they find out that actually I'm an enemy of God, and they see Jesus as holy, as someone who willingly laid down his life for their sins, took upon the wrath for them, and then rose again, and now is seated at the right hand of God. When they see Jesus Christ and put their faith in him, yes, they are saved. They should see that as salvation. But salvation does not come by itself. Look at the next part of the verse. Training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So grace doesn't just bring us and to save us. It's not God, God's grace doesn't just save us, no, but God's grace then begins to transform us and to work off those sinful vices that we have been walking in when we were not in him. Grace begins to transform us. That's why we sang the song by grace and grace alone. I love that. And it said, what did he say? I will stand in faith by grace and grace alone. I will run the race by grace and grace alone. Then what else to say? I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. Salvation involves a grace that slays sin. And we have to understand that as we think about appointing pastors and for our own selves. Now we sing this song, I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. And we know that it begins by placing faith in Christ Jesus. But what do you do after that? What does it really mean, I will slay my, I will slay my sin by grace? Am I supposed to do something? I thought I wasn't supposed to do something. This is what you do. Look at the verse. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What do we do? Hmm. We wait. Huh? We look. We long. We rest in Jesus Christ. We look for that great hope that is to come. We put our rest in the future glory. Do you get what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, I'm not, 
I'm not saying you initially go out and just start, oh, I have to, okay, I got to stop cussing. Let me go and um, stop listening to rap music because rap music makes me cuss. And I got, you might should do that. And I, and, and I got to stop um, lusting after women, so I'm going to turn off BT and I'm going to turn off my computer. And you might should do that, but that's not where you start, though. That's law. That's law. And it law won't last. Grace is looking to Jesus and putting your rest and hope in him and loving him and delighting in him. And how do we delight in him? By getting into his word and thinking about all that he's done for us. How do we delight in him? By being around other like-minded believers who are also conforming to the image of Christ. How do we delight in him? We delight by prayer, asking him to give us the grace to fight against this sin. That's what waiting is. And so when we do it by grace, we're saying, Lord, I look to you, Jesus, and I know that you are going to redeem me from all lawlessness. You have done it ultimately in the cross, and you will do it day by day. Part of the reason why we keep struggling with sin is, is not because we're not doing enough. <laughs> we got a lot of apps, and we got a lot of accountability partners, and, and we read our word a lot. But yet, in all those things, we're not grabbing hold of Jesus. When you grab hold of Jesus, that's when the grace begins to transform us and to strip off all the lawless deeds. So put your hope in this Jesus and watch him transform you. And so a pastor must be a person who basically has grab hold of Jesus. And we must be people who, have, who grab hold of Jesus and trust in him for our salvation. So he must be blameless at home. He must be blameless in character. And then he also must be blameless in doctrine. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, I like that he used the word hold firm because it gives a picture of how a tight grip on God's word and holding it close. He is a man of the word. He saturates himself in the word. He walks according to it. He knows it. He lives under it. He knows the God of the word. And he holds firm to the word, the trustworthy word that has been taught. You know, the gospel has not changed, it's trustworthy. Why do you think a lot of, 
Let's say Hinduism, for, let's say Hinduism, for instance. Why do you think there's so many gods? Probably because one god just didn't work out. Probably. And if you look at a bunch of religions, what you will see is that the message continues kind of to shift. They're trying to get it, don't get it. But this gospel is an eternal gospel. You know that, right? This gospel was preached at the beginning of time. This gospel was preached with Adam and Eve. When he told Adam and Eve that he would give them a seed that would crush the serpent's head. This gospel was preached with with Abraham when he told him he would give him a seed that would bless the nations. This gospel has been around for a long time. This is trustworthy. We don't have to deviate from it. We don't have to add to it. Because it's from the God that cannot lie. This is a trustworthy gospel we have. And therefore, the pastor must hold to it, and he must teach from it. And he must do two things. He must instruct and he must be able to refute. This is what gives the, the pastoral role kind of its distinction from, I guess, um, I guess non-pastoral role. Is that he gives himself to, to using the word to instruct others and to fight off false teachers. His time is spent using the word to edify the body. And he does so with a definite clarity and a wisdom and and winsomeness that just begs for people to come and receive instruction from him. How many people have been around Jai Hill and not left a little more holier? Every time I leave, I leave holier. And it ain't because of him. It's because every time he talks, he has a word on his lips. He spews word when he prays. That's the type of man we must, that's a pastor. I loved when, when we had our elders meeting at one point and when we were going through some, some tough times. And Pastor Matt stood up and said, what I do know is that Satan doesn't want us to succeed in our church plan. That's a man of God's word who sees things from God's perspective. Friends, all of our pastors are men of God's word, and we must seek to be instructed by them, and we praise God for them, and we also must recognize other people who God has gifted with being able to speak clearly and to deduct wisely from God's Word and to teach it. These are the type of people that we must appoint as pastors. And again, this is the type of people that everybody must be. So he says in First Peter that we must all be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. 
And we all are to mature so that we can disciple one another and instruct each other in godliness. And so while this is a standard for pastors, it also is a standard for us as well. So Paul tells Titus, Paul tells Titus that the pastor must be blameless at home, and Paul tells us the pastor must be blameless at home, he must be blameless in conduct, and he must be blameless in teaching. And those type of pastors that we should raise up. And we, that we should recognize and appoint. But what do we do with those pastors after we recognize them? What does Paul tell Titus? Go back to verse 5. He says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, I can imagine Titus like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Didn't you get the letter I sent you or that you got, you received? The church I'm currently trying to pastor isn't even developed yet. There are false teachers around here breaking up homes and taking away the joy of Christians. He keeps finding himself in debate about the law and myths. And Titus was probably thinking, like, well, can, I, can I get established here first? Right? We, we're a new church. And what will Paul's response be? You see it in the letters. I'm just going to say it. Paul's response is, if they're being divisive, don't deal with them. Stop arguing about silly myths. Teach believers how to live godly lives. Rebuke the false teachers. And do what I left you there to do. Which is what? Appoint elders in every town. Plant churches. So this is my question for us. How mature does this congregation have to be in order to plant another church? How mature do we have to be? Most church, most church plant vision goes something like this. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to wait till the ropes is back, until all the seats are filled, and then when we don't have any more seats or any more spots in the parking lot, then we think about planting. I don't think that's what Paul said here. Paul said... When you touch down in Crete, yeah, think about your own church, but you should also be ready to send out pastors to plant other churches. And this is the vision that we must have and that we do have at this church by God's grace. And if you think about it, this is, this is what is crazy. Think about it. He said plant church in every, in every town. Now, if that was just two towns, it would not be so spectacular. But the Bible dictionary, one of these Bible dictionaries said that the, this town, now called Candia, was one of the largest items, islands in the Mediterranean. It's about 140 miles long. 35 miles broad, 
It was one time very prosperous and had about a hundred cities. Had about a hundred cities, hundred towns. Now, he says appoint elders. And when we look at the scriptures, whenever we see elder, it's elderza for the most part. Churches are to be governed by multiple elders, okay? That's the pattern that's laid out, starting from Jesus when he sends them out two by two. Then, then we see the Acts and the Apostles when they appoint elders in different towns and in, in different churches. Elders is a group thing. Now we've got a hundred towns, and we got the minimum of two elders. That would deplete your church real fast. That's 200 people that you're trying to send out to go plant churches, to go be elders in other cities and towns. But is this not the heart of Jesus? When he rode through the cities and when he saw the crowds, it said he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, so pray earnestly for the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest. You want to know what's wrong with neighborhoods? For real, for real. From God's perspective, it ain't enough godly churches with godly pastors. That's what it boils down to. How do I know that? Because when heaven is ushered in, it is going to be nothing. Every block is going to be filled with nothing but praises to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's going to be perfect harmony and unity and perfect peace and perfect justice. And so the problem is that there is no Christian witness on every block. So that means we should do what? We should try to put a church, a gospel witness, on every block. Every block, yes. I am not exaggerating. Every block. The problem is not as too many churches in the neighborhood. The problem is that Christians sometimes don't be united. But we should have, there are, there are two churches I know right now that are, 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 are planting in the Deanwood area where I would love to go to plant a church. And we should be praying for their church. In Revolution D.C., headed up by Devin Turner and another church by Mr. Bonner called Greater Love Fellowship Bible Church. We should be praying for them often, thinking about how we could help those church plants. And yet we should also send another church plant over there. For the church, for the people who may not enter those, they may enter this one. And God will still be gathering sheep, and that's his goal. His goal is to gather sheep. And if he does it with another church plant in the same area, well, to God be the glory. 
And so we want to be a church that plants churches on every block that we see. The whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we want to reclaim it for him. And so we should go and make disciples and plant churches. In his book, Color Your World with Natural Church Development, this one author writes, he asks the person, what is the true fruit of an apple tree? And the person replied, the true fruit of an apple tree is an apple, of course. But then the guy said, you're wrong. The true fruit of an apple tree is not an apple, but another apple tree. And the true fruit of a small group is not a new Christian, but another small group. And the true fruit of evangelists is not just a convert, but new evangelists. And the true fruit of a church is not a new group, but rather another church. Growth is not us increasing in number, but it's us increasing God's number by going out and making disciples and praying that he would bring more people into a covenant body as a church. Growth for you as an individual, yes, is growing in maturity as a Christian, but it's also multiplying yourself and pastoring others and leading others to grow in Christ-likeness. That's what multiplication is about. That's what our church, that's what we want to be about. And so we ask for God's grace in helping us in this area. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your church grew and then just grow in one particular area but it grew around the world and it spread and it made its way to United States of America and, and we are not partakers of it by your grace through the preaching of the gospel and Lord God we want to be a church that multiplies and that sees this gospel grow more throughout the world. Where we see new elders appointed to serve in this church and also sent out to serve in other churches. Please give us grace in sending out, Lord God. And give us grace to recognize those who are among us who should be appointed as elders. And help us all to grow in Christ's likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.